0: Alright folks, welcome back to a new episode of your favorite podcast, The Africanist. I hope that everybody is staying safe and healthy in this uh, time of pandemic and that everybody is enjoying the summer. As you all know, uh, the death of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, and George Floyd has fostered a national as well as a global protest movement against the inhumane treatment of black bodies, police brutality, and systemic racism. Furthermore, these tragedies have also sparked a global discussion on race and the legacy of slavery and colonialism. In this regard, black folks on both sides of the Atlantic are demanding, for instance, the removal of statues celebrating uh, figures who were involved in uh, the oppression of black people and also the renaming of streets that bear the names of these figures. In this sense, several questions come to mind. How can black folks overcome these issues, systemic racism? Can Pan-Africanism be an answer to the plight of black folks? And what should be done on a policy basis to bring a fix to this issue? And to talk about all of these uh, important questions, I have a special guest. Uh, His name is Okram Burton. Okram is... The director of the Kentucky Center for African American Heritage. Okram, welcome to The Africanist.
1: Thank you for having me,
0: Bamba. All right. To begin, who is Okram? And how did you end up here in this great place called the Kentucky Center for African American Heritage?
1: Well, that story will probably take more than your podcast can, but I'll try my best to give you kind of a snapshot of my life. I was born and raised in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Basically, I was uh, raised in a black middle class, or I would say working class, uh, community. And uh, you, at that time, Philadelphia was the largest black working class, middle class in the country. And uh, when I grew up, I was my parents kept me involved in social clubs and. I guess one of the most significant uh, uh, organizations that I was a part of that had, I think, an impact on my life was the Boy Scouts. I went on, became Eagle Scout, traveled to Philmont Scout Ranch. Um, So I was exposed to some really good skills. And one of those skills was photography. Uh, My Scoutmaster actually was a photographer Mm -hmm. and uh, he took pictures of models Uh, One day when we were in his dark room, we discovered the negatives of the models. And it just turned us on and said, this is what we want to do. Um, Well, went on. as I grew up and became a teenager, you have to realize during that period of time, we're talking about the turbulent 60s. All right. Vietnam War protests, uh, black power movement. In fact, um, Philly was probably a major, was a major city. For the Black Power movement, the Black Power uh, conference was held in 1968 in Philadelphia. But there were a whole lot of things that led up to that Black Power. The term Black Power actually started in Philly and New York um, way before Stokely had coined it. So I grew up in that environment, um, and I, I just don't want to make the mistake of, you know, suggesting that that I was in I was impacted by that. I wasn't really involved in it, all right, but I, I knew about it. I knew about the Black Panthers um, because it was in the news. That was their response to the police brutality that was going on, I mean that's one thing that people need to understand that what we're fighting for today is not new. This is something that's been going on for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in 1970, I left Philadelphia and went to Boston to study at Northeastern University and when uh, I actually was going to pursue a uh, degree in criminal justice and then I got involved at the African-American Institute on campus um, and really hung out with some very courageous and intelligent people who were already connected to the black freedom struggle and that's when I really got my you know orientation. I was uh, the the photo editor for the uh, newspaper that came out of the Institute. I really enjoyed that because I had a dark room to myself. And that's when I really honed my skills uh, because uh, prior to that, I I didn't really process and develop my own work. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, that gives you a little background uh, of, of, of what, what went down. But I I do want to say one thing in terms of my connection in my uh, love for the motherland, um, There were, uh, uh, I became very, very uh, active at the Institute. One book that really set my trajectory in terms of developing my black consciousness was a book by J.A. Rogers, all right? Mm -hmm. It actually, they say J.A. Rogers, but it's actually Joel Joel Augusta Rogers. Mm -hmm. And uh, he wrote 10 amazing facts about Negro with a complete proof and This book is something that I read almost every night before I went to bed, reading these facts and figures. And you'll find that a a number of other people that are well-known in historical circles, black historical circles. um, I know that um, a number of uh, scholars reference this book all the time, especially a book that was really helpful in getting them started in pursuing uh, black history. Mm -hmm. Another book was uh, Africa's Gift to America. That Jay Rogers wrote, and uh, it began to really show that we were more than just slaves here in this country. You know, when we talk about pandemics, uh, you, you know, smallpox. All right, yeah. they they didn't really come to any kind of understanding of how to treat that mm-hmm. until uh, a so-called enslaved uh, African shared what they did in terms of vaccines. So vaccination was something that we brought. To this country, they didn't know about it at this. So, I, I just wanted to kind of point that out. That um, I became very, very um, uh, motivated um, and started to get involved in student struggle. We took over the president's office about three times, demanding. This
0: was at at Northeastern, Northeastern University, yes. Okay in right. the in the seventies.
1: In the seventies, yes, mm-hmm. yes, yeah. We took over, uh, was it Asa Knowles was his, his name? We took over his, part. the last time we took over his office, uh, he literally just walked out and let us come in. <laughs> so no, how, how three, many times three, three, did you? Three times, three times. Three times? times? Yeah, it, 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 because uh, we were fighting for more resources for uh, mm-hmm. African and black studies on campus and yeah. uh, they constantly pushed back. Mm. And so we had to, you know, really, you know, demand it's uh, one of the reasons why I didn't graduate from Northeastern because they basically cut my scholarship. Uh, they didn't tell me that I couldn't come, but they basically said mm-hmm. we're going to make it difficult for you to, to to come. So I didn't finish my degree at Northeastern. I went on and studied art and photography at the University of Massachusetts. And uh, uh, we didn't got involved in community development uh, or community protests. Um, and uh, you know. We formulated an organization called the National Black Students Association, NBSA. And uh, our motto was agitate, educate, and organize. Agitate, educate, educate, and and organize. organize. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't understand if you want to clean something up, if you put something in the washer and it does not have the agitator, the clothes don't get clean. So we felt agitation was a very important part of that. So what we see today in the streets is agitation, all right? But agitation alone is not important, you know, we not enough. We have to then go and educate. Then once we educate, we have to organize. And here, when you talk about educate,
0: what do you mean specifically? Is it formal education as we know it in schools, universities, or is it just any platform that can inform right. people of the importance of the struggle mm-hmm. and the importance of knowing their history. What exactly do you mean yeah, by
1: that That's a good education? question. Uh, l- let me uh, be clear that, uh, you know, I would go to class when I was at Northeastern. Uh, I sat in a sociology 101 at the time. The book was Tally's Corner. Tally's Corner was about some—I forget exactly. I, I think it was Chicago or some place where sociologists did studies about Black people. All right, mm-hmm. and it was just very boring, you know. Um, and I, I took issue with some of the analysis and whatever. So when I started getting involved in the street, that's when my real education began, and I was able to then apply mm-hmm. social theory. Uh, To what our struggle was, because uh, the point of view in which they were teaching in a university was not our point of view. Hmm. It was counter, you know, it was a counter narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, So we were in the street creating a new narrative and we are constantly doing that. We're doing that today. Uh, The people that are in the street today are creating a new narrative. So, yeah, education is very key, but we need to understand, you know, what we mean when we say education. Definitely. Um, And then also, I think it's important to um, understand that many of the people that are in the street today, because I I live literally one mile from where the protests have been taking place here in In Louisville. Downtown Louisville. Yeah. And... uh, uh, I ride my bike uh, with my wife, and we drive by every day just to see what's going on and to, to stay connected. Mm-hmm. Um, and and many of the people that come out, they, they there's there's a lot of rage, definitely, right? Yeah. Enough rage for them to agitate. But what I find is that a lot of them are don't have the knowledge of the fact that this has happened before, and that we have as as political activists, as, as social activists, we have to do a better job of connecting the intergenerational uh, 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 connection there mm-hmm. so that um, they're going to make mistakes. I made mistakes when I was, you know, a student organizer. Um, but we had older folks around us that we could learn from, you know, because that's how you learn is by making mistakes. Yeah. Um, you can't learn without making mistakes. That, that, for me, is the education. We had a uh, an MBSA and then also in other political organizations that I was affiliated with, uh, we had a, a saying which was, uh, uh, each one teach one. It, it took the ego out of education. In other words, I can teach you and you can teach me. No matter mm-hmm. whether or not you are younger than me or not, I can still learn from you. Right. So we try to teach the notion of humility uh, and to be humble. And just because, you know, maybe people in our community may not be well educated is not a reason for them, for us to look down on them, Mm -hmm. that we have to live amongst the people and grow with them. And that was one of the issues in the 60s is that we were moving faster than the mass of our people were ready to move. It really opened us up for a lot of uh, of problems. Uh, for instance, the Black Panthers—they had a breakfast program, very successful. Uh, sickle cell anemia, all Definitely, right, yeah. very successful. Mm-hmm. It wasn't happening before they came. You know, they didn't even know what sickle cell was. But there were forces within the Panthers, or I would say, people who infiltrated the Panthers that pushed the military question. The Panthers was about self-defense. It was the Black Panthers for self-defense. For self-defense. All right, but it was not only physical self-defense. It was mm-hmm. self-defense, is a, it encompasses a lot. But physical self-defense was also a part of it. Um, but you had elements in the Panthers that tried to push the self-defense uh, to the point where the media exaggerated that as if they we were... picked up on... Right.
0: The Self defense part, part and turn right. it into attack, actually, exactly. because to be able to say self defense, there is an underlying assumption if I get attacked, I have the right to defend myself. Yes, uh, the media
1: was oblivious of that. Well, I think they were they weren't so much oblivious, they would they they knew what they were doing. I mean, it was, it, a, it, it was a coordinated effort because <laughs> you got to remember the COINTELPRO, definitely, which FBI uh, mm-hmm. uh conducted, um, was about. Uh, really circumventing and, and dismantling, and, and dismantling the these Black organizations. Mm-hmm. So they had agent provocateurs, just as you see today. You have agent provocateurs, you know, you know, roaming around with the protesters, and mm-hmm. when they have a chance, they try to derail the the protests. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what happened uh, with the Black Panthers and a number of other organizations that were in existence. They they advanced the military question. All right, and did not look at you know the fact that we were winning people over through education. We were feeding them. They had a breakfast program, definitely. All right, um, and they with the breakfast program came a political education. We, we lost that, and so today, you know, what we need to do is to really return back to that period because for me, it provides a roadmap of where we have to go. There's going to be pushback from what we see happening today and we have to be prepared if you look at our history the africans here in this country and, and let me qualify something queen mother moore um, and I, i'll tell you a little bit uh, about her queen mother moore uh, used to say if a cat has kittens mm-hmm. in the oven it does not make them biscuits <laughs> if a cat has, has, a, kittens, has kittens in an oven mm-hmm. it does not make them biscuits in other words Even though we were born here in the United States, it does not make us white, right? We are still African. Whether we know or agree or not, uh, if you look at the culture, if you look at our music, if you look at our art, if you look at our cuisine, you know, it resembles what we brought with us from the motherland. There will be a
0: lot of people who will argue against that right? because, yes, Africa... Uh, was the starting point but then some people argue that black folks in the united states are not africans right some call themselves black people right. or african-american and we know that there is an evolution of the the term or the identity of those people who were enslaved from the continent first they were africans then they were negroes then they were, you know, they were other derogatory terms that were we'll used, like the N-words, then black folks, African-Americans. So we see a an evolution of the term. So whereas some people will agree with you that we are still, like black folks here are still Africans, others will simply say, no, we're Americans, or no, we're African-Americans. So what would you say to those people?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you, you raise a really good point. Um uh, And uh, I I have a lot to say about this, and I won't go into a whole lot of detail. But I will say this, that um, whether you were African born here on this continent, born in China, Mm -hmm. born in Brazil, at the end of the day, my question is, are you venerating your ancestors? Because we have Africans on the continent that are not venerating their ancestors. They're venerating other people's ancestors, you know. If you just look at the choice of worship,
0: it, do you mean like the religions? Yeah, um, yes. Islam, right. Christianity. Well,
1: yeah, I, I would say let me let me qualify this because mm-hmm. I'm not taking a position against these religions, mm-hmm. but people need to understand who we were prior to the contact. Right. And mm-hmm. so I've been to Africa enough to know that there are a number of Africans that understand that even though they practice Islam and even though they practice Christianity, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, they venerate their ancestors. All right. So <laughs> let me just keep that straight. But mm-hmm. there are a number that are too busy trying to appease the European.
0: I wanted to know how your formative years in in, in Philly and Boston have impacted your work here in the African-American uh, Heritage Center?
1: It's, uh, it has impacted me greatly. I mean, when I was in Boston, we ran the, uh, as I said earlier, the African-American Institute, mm-hmm. all right? But we also had a parallel institute or organization, which was called the Norfolk House, and we, relo- we located that in the community We had a survival fund because we knew that even though we would protest to get money from the university, that at some point they were going to cut that off. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to have the means of having our own institution in our community. So that has been in me from the very beginning. I saw what or how important it was to have a community-based institution So when I moved here to Louisville, um, I came here uh, to um, be an administrator in the local school department, and uh, I befriended a number of people, and and they happened to like my, you know, position on things, and they said, man, I want to take you to lunch one day. I want you to meet someone, and they took me to meet Celeste Lanier, who was the founding mother of this institution, all right?
0: Celeste so who uh whom I worked with for yeah. 2 years mm-hmm. uh at the University
1: of Louisville. Very bright woman. Very um, bright. she had she had a vision mm-hmm. for this center. In fact, we would not be sitting here if it was not for Celeste. Mm-hmm. So Celeste and I became very close um and because of my position in the school department and the fact that I saw this as an important thing to embed in the curricula <laughs> of uh I convinced the school board uh for us to have a uh, memorandum of agreement between Jefferson County Public Schools and and uh the Kentucky Center for African American Heritage and therefore that also got me a seat on the board. Now simultaneously what was happening there there was a lot of pushback um because at the t- same time that this building was being constructed or renovated, uh this used to be an old trolley barn. It's sixty eight thousand square feet. Mm-hmm. Um the Muhammad Ali Center was coming up online. And so there were a number of people that were saying, why do we need bl- two black institutions? Right Now, nobody asked that question about white institutions. No, that's, that's really right? bizarre. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then the two different mm-hmm. institutions, right? And so shortly after that, they came after Celeste. I, mean, I won't go into the details. They came after her. They had said that there was a mismanagement of funds, which was not true. They proved that it wasn't true. Uh, But the damage had already been done. Mm -hmm. Uh, Celeste was raising millions of dollars. All right. And when that allegation came out in the press, you know, black people, you know, once something like that comes, everything dried up. Okay. Wow. And I was on the board at the time, uh, saw a lot of the stuff. Celeste was forced to resign. Um, And then I realized that, you know, what my destiny was Mm -hmm. and why I met her. And so I took it upon myself to make sure that I keep this thing alive. Because ultimately what they wanted was to close this down. Mm. And this could have been something told. This could be administrative offices for the city of Louisville, and things like that. And we refused so, to do so, that. So the problem wasn't actually Celeste or... Not at but all. But just the, Not at all. the
0: idea of no. the Kentucky Center for African Not American at all. Heritage. all. Yeah, this was
1: a, a, a sovereign... Uh, uh, institution that we built that black people were proud of and I found that my job was to to regain that. So we had to fight against the perception of uh, mismanagement. We had to show for, I, I came on board as executive director in 2015. I spent two and a half, maybe three years just changing that perception around. Alright, so we're now on track, we've been attracting funders. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we've demonstrated that we can do the specific programs. I have uh, in mind of really opening up our relations with our brothers and sisters on on the mainland. I, I think that there are a number of different organizations that are, are uh, you know now, uh, out there that we need to be in support of to facilitate that. But at the end of the day, we all have a common goal and we have a common oppressor. You know, a lot of people don't understand that, and we need to begin to address that and have in house conversations about it. We have particular skills, meaning African Americans, that are needed on the continent, all right? And what the continent has is land. And at the end of the day... And then skills too. Yeah, well, no, no, no. no, no I, I, I definitely. I didn't mean to uh-huh. suggest that that wasn't the case, but a lot of times what um, African Americans here don't understand is that they have something to offer mm-hmm. to the motherland, all right? Um, and um, we've been so brainwashed to hate the motherland. A lot of the you know, people talk about sell up, talk about racism, All right. The overt racism, you know, the different uh, behaviors and perceptions and implicit biases that that people have. But really what's killing us now is the internalized racism. Mm -hmm. And the internalized racism is that we have not accepted who we are. And once you begin to do that, you create a certain transformation within yourself. And once that transformation takes place in yourself, it begins to take place in the community. So again, I go back to this notion of organizing and educating, you know, or educating and organizing, because this is what we have to do. We're, we're in disarray. I mean, you look at a lot of the so-called black-on-black violence, as they call it. Um, a lot of that comes out of the, the fact that they just internalized hate for who they are.
0: But we, we also see that type of violence among other groups it's
1: absolutely not, yeah yeah so. no no I'm not I'm, what, what I'm I am focused on mm-hmm. our community mm-hmm. all right um, I understand the um, uh, the mantras that occur in the media, the black on black, you know that type of thing uh, but I, I think at the end of the day you know what we we, we have to wake up and really smell what's really going down. We don't we don't manufacture the guns. The guns are sold in our community. The drugs are sold in our community. And they're gonna know what's happening. It's the same scenario as what they did in Africa. All right. They they create a situation where you have groups within our community vying for power. All right. But it gets very, very it, it's it's a lot more complex than that, Bamba. Uh you, you have young African-American boys and girls who are not reading on grade level by the third grade, by the fourth grade, all right? And we know people who do educational research, we know that they use that statistic to determine how many beds they need to have for, for jails. prisons. For prisons, mm-hmm. all right? So we know that the lack of critical thinking, the lack of reading is a part of the problem. All right. So when you have young men, and a lot of these young men and women, they don't really start to transform themselves, when they go into prison, and we have a classic example of that, and that's Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. Malcolm didn't really transform himself until he went to prison, and he started reading. And it wasn't Elijah Muhammad that really encouraged him to do that; it was his mother, because his mother, you know, and 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 his relatives were school teachers. Mm-hmm. All right, and they said, "Keep your mind busy,
0: busy." Definitely. So I want to come back to, because you have uh, different skills here. You mentioned earlier that you studied photography, so you're an artist. So how has the Black experience influenced your work over the decades as a photographer?
1: Well, I've dedicated, you know, um, I would say since... Uh, the 1980s, I've dedicated my work towards uh, documenting African culture, wherever it may be. I have a an exhibit currently called um, Journeys in the African Diaspora, mm-hmm. um, where I have been to West Africa, Senegal, Ghana, Nigeria, Benin, the whole west coast of Africa and all the way down to the Congo is littered with slave dungeons. They call them castles. I, I think that's an inappropriate term. It, it was dungeons because... Dungeons, definitely. The, 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 the way we were treated. Very treating, sinister places. Right, yeah. right. And uh, uh, the I have an, a photograph of the Cape Coast dungeon,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: I explain why I call it the dungeon. Also Elmina, dungeon all right um and uh there are a number of others so i've been and i just recently was in benin in february just before the the outbreak and uh was able to um walk the um slave route and got really a whole another perspective because m- many many africans were brought from that area mm-hmm. um Uh, especially uh, in Haiti. And I can understand um, how Haiti was able to pull off the revolution. Uh, Those people are very dedicated to their system that has been placed for thousands of years. And so I I just think that uh, one of the things that I'm interested in doing, and I don't know if it will be done in my lifetime, but at least I want to contribute to us healing our broken world. Mm-hmm. All right. But the only way we can do that is first people understanding that our world is broken. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and into uh, small pieces. Yeah, <laughs> and, but but those pieces can be, we can mend. There's some things that we can bring back together. It may. It's like a broken calabash, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, you can put the pieces back together. It may not be, you know. But at least you can kind of look, I mean, and the first thing is we need to look at what we were before enslavement. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that Walter Rodney does a very good job in his book, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. I think he lays out a very clear understanding of where we were prior to enslavement, and I recommend it. Anybody reads that book because oh, that gives a, you a foundation. It's a classic. Yes, in Black Studies. Uh, when I was a student at uh, Northeastern, we had him here several times. Mm-hmm. You know, I met him many times. Um, I forgot to mention that I um, also the NBSA. I think one of the major accomplishments of the NBSA is that we organized the Black Solidarity Conference in 1973. Mm-hmm. Uh, at um, actually, we had two. Two conferences at Tufts University.
0: And what were those conferences about?
1: We brought all of the old, uh, you got to remember, at 73, it's like either many of the activists of the 60s were killed, mm-hmm. run out of the country, or they went underground. Yeah. All right. And there were a few that were around that we were able to bring and have conversations. We brought historians like John Henry Clark, Queen Mother Moore. Queen Mother Moore was an old Garveyite. Mm-hmm. All right, she was also part of the CP, but she left the CP because of the uh, constant uh, focus on class and refuting the whole notion of race. Yeah. Uh, uh, Robert Williams. All mm-hmm. right, he had just returned from exile mm-hmm. uh, in Cuba, and then to China, mm-hmm. uh, and then to Tanzania. All right. Um, We had, uh, oh man, I would go down the list. Uh, We had Amari Obadeli, who was the founder of the Republic of New Africa. We had Muhammad Ahmed, who was the founder of uh, the Revolutionary Action Action Movement, which was uh, RAM. And we had Yuri Kochiyama. Yuri Kochiyama, not that many people know Yuri Kochiyama, she's Japanese. All right. And she became politicized because of the uh, internment camps Mm -hmm. after the Japanese had bombed the United States. And so she became very, very involved in politics in New York um, and became very close friends to Malcolm X. All right. And if you were in New York in any given Sunday and Malcolm was in New York, you could go to Yuri's house between one and three Mm -hmm. and you could. Sit down and she lived in the projects, and you could sit down and talk with Malcolm. Um, And uh, if you look at the March 5th, 1968, Life magazine, is a picture of Malcolm in the Audubon ballroom after he had been shot. And you will see a picture. Of an Asian woman, mm-hmm. that was Yuri Kochiyama. She was the first. While his bodyguards were ducking, Yuri went straight to the stage to comfort him. Um, if you want to hear her comments about that day, Democracy Now! has a really great interview with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's no longer with us. I. I'm really blessed to have had the chance to to see her one last time before she passed. Democracynow.org, dot De- Demo- org. I mean. Yes, democracynow.org. dot org, and um, so Yuri was a a, a major major force, um, and uh, her husband, her family, um, and so this is the thing that that we have to understand is in our struggle. We have had allies, all right, and allies are important. You know, we we didn't do it by ourselves from slavery up until now. Mm-hmm. We we had abolitionists, all right, who put their necks on line. We had John Brown, all right, and, and here in Louisville we had Ann Braden.
0: Ann Braden, yeah.
1: She was put up on charges of sedition because she helped a family get a house that they couldn't get in Shively neighborhood that was eventually bombed. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of rich history here in Louisville. Definitely. Right? Um, goes back to the Underground Railroad and even beyond. Yeah. But I think the most important piece, even though I self-identify as African American, what needs to be understood is, and what I understand in terms of when I talk about venerating my ancestors, part of that is venerating the Native American that's in my blood, all right. Because on my mother's side, Cherokee, all right. And my great, my what was it my great grandmother, all right. My grandfather, my mother's father's mother, was a full-blooded Cherokee. <laughs> Cherokee. Interesting. Yeah. I so, mean, she was black. I mean, mm-hmm. you you could see she had black features, but mm-hmm. she. She also had Native American feet. And Native Americans uh, helped us in many ways. When we escaped the plantations, we took refuge amongst them because they had sovereignty in many places. Um, And this is the thing that uh, African Americans don't uh, 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 give enough attention to. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that What's important here, Bamba, as we have this conversation, if we kind of look at it through the lens of Allah, God, Ola Dumare, whatever way we identify, that there's a definitely a divine plan. I think the struggle that we're up against today is addressing our humanity, you know. And we have suffered it's through suffering that we have educated the world all right we have uh, it's our suffering that wakes the world up if you look at the slavery we woke the world up about that you look at apartheid we woke the world up about that all right you look at the 60s what's happening we Civil woke the world. and what are we doing today black people uh, have always been at the center Of social justice, political justice. And human rights. And human rights. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before Malcolm was assassinated, one of his, that was the first of several speeches that he was going to give to lead up to taking our plight to the UN. All right. For violations of human rights. So it's important for us to have this continuity. Mm -hmm. Right. Because we don't have to recreate a wheel. The wheel is there. Right. Yeah. We just had to get on it.
0: So you mentioned several civil rights activists in the 60s and, you know, 70s that you interacted with or had the chance to meet. But there was one in particular that you had a very close relationship with, Robert Williams. Right. So Robert Williams, who was a leader of the NAACP.
1: In Monroe, North Carolina, yes. North
0: Carolina. Mm -hmm. And then he also wrote a very interesting monograph uh, called Negroes with Guns, Mm -hmm. like a very revolutionary book. So, can you tell us more about him and how he might have influenced you as a freedom fighter? Rob
1: was, uh, you know, very uh, uh, influential Mm -hmm. on my development. I I referred to him as a a mentor. I brought him to Boston many times to speak. I've recorded him both audio recordings as well as video recordings.
0: Do you still have those recordings? Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was a consultant on a PBS uh, documentary uh, about him called uh, "Negroes with Guns," Robert F. Williams. Uh, I have a little issue with it, is that they fell short of his international. They talk about it, but really his story is the international story. I mean, mm-hmm. what happened in Monroe certainly needs to be told, but it's what happened after when he, he left. Left to, right. to Cuba and then right. China. Right. right. So what happens, we have to understand, is that mm-hmm. uh, on a given day, Rob was a very rare leader. He believed in armed self-defense and also uh, civil disobedience. So but he
0: it, was a mix of right. the SCLC and the Black Panther Party right. for self-defense. exactly. In
1: fact, Black Panthers got their philosophy from Rob. Malcolm got philosophy from Rob. All right? And Rob got his philosophy from the Lumbee Indians right down the road from Monroe because the Lumbees had repelled racist Attacks by the Klan. And that's what educated Rob on what Monroe needed to do. All right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... And also influenced the deacons for defense. All right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this whole notion of armed self-defense is it's nothing new. All right? And it's clearly that. Self-defense. You know? It's in... constitution we have every right to defend ourselves okay um so anyway on a given day uh rob had told his folks that he was not going into town to protest because it was uh, you know he he wasn't down to get bitten by dogs and hosed down (laughs) he he didn't play that right Mm -hmm. and uh he said you you can go and there were a bunch of people out of town that were there agitating the whole thing. Well, the thing really turned sour. It turned bad. And Rob and his wife were in the house. You know, people were straggling back. People were beaten and bitten and, you know, what have you. Um, But at the same time that they were trickling back, there was a white couple that had meandered into the black section of Monroe. And Rob saw them and went out, And the good heart that he had says, look, I'm going to tell you this. You need to come in my house now.
0: All right, folks, that's it for part one of my discussion with Ockram Burton, head of the Kentucky Center for African-American Heritage in Louisville. Tune in next week for part two of this episode. And if you have questions, comments, criticisms, or suggestions, please do not hesitate to contact us at theafricanist2020 at gmail.com. theafricanist2020 at gmail.com. In the meantime, stay safe and healthy, and tune in next week for more of your favorite podcast, The Africanist. Thank you very much. Lutons pour la paix, conjamo Afrika, mon l'aigna, manejamu Afrika, mo il